Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. You know, we're in a small church here, and a long time ago in this small church, there was a person that I, I, I was interviewing on tape for his testimony. And, and he'd come here a long time. And he was an older person and he had been in World War II. And so during the, the testimony, he was telling me a lot of very interesting stories about the war, the Second World War. And, I, and it was very interesting and, and I was listening. But then I realized that, well, he's never, you know, he's never really told me how he was saved. And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me how you were saved. Tell me how you knew you were a sinner and that you were safe from your sins. And I'll never forget it to this day. He, he looked at me and he said, sinner? He said, I'm no sinner. Sinner? He said, don't talk to me about sin. I'm not a sinner. <laughs> I was shocked <laughs> in our church, in this little small church. That tragedy happens to people in the church in general because the Lord's message is repent of your sins. Come to him to be saved from your sins. So with that backdrop, that's how we move into the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we interpret these Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. These Beatitudes start, that, that start off his Sermon on the Mount here are a continuation of his preaching that started in the previous chapter in, Mark, in Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.17, where we've seen from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent. In other words, realize you're wrong, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, I mean, many people look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, oh, well, that's a description of how you'd be righteous and, and what you're supposed to be like, but we're looking at it differently now because we're looking at it as a continuation of what he started his preaching in Matthew 4.17 when he said, repent. And so, the verses in verses three through six, three through, through six, Matthew five, three through six, described a person before he is saved. Before he is saved, that person feels so poor in spirit that he realizes he can't do any good works to get into heaven, and he knows in verse three, in Matthew five, verse three, he's poor in spirit, he feels so poor, he feels like he has nothing to hold up to God and to say how good he is or that he's religious. He's poor in spirit. Before he's saved, all his sins have broken his heart. He's under such a conviction of his, of his sins, he's sad. And so in verse four, he's described as a person who, in the group of people, they that mourn, mourn. He's filled with remorse, he's mourning over his sin. He's filled with this question, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Before he's saved, he's so humbled 
and crushed by his sins, he can't even lift his head up. He can't even lift his head up. He, he knows he deserves judgment to be cast into hell. He's under such a conviction that he's driven to a state that's described in verse five is he's meek. He's so meek. He's so meek that he feels he's on death row and he's, he has no appeals. He can't, there's no more appeals. He's just waiting there on death row for his name to be called so he can take that last walk to the death chamber. That's the meekness he's under. So before he's saved, he, he feels so empty inside, so hungry, so thirsty deep in his soul for what he doesn't have. And he's joined the ranks of verse six where he's among those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Before he's saved, this is what his sins have done to him. His sins have reduced him to a state of poverty in spirit, to a state of mourning. He's crushed into a state of meekness and he now feels this howling void deep down, this kind of gnawing hunger in his soul. He feels so bone dry, thirsty in his core because he's hungry and he's thirsty for righteousness that is so far from him. And in verse six, he's hungering, thirsty after righteousness. This is the description of the person before he's saved. This description of poverty and mourning and, and being crushed and, and, and feeling so horribly hungry and thirsty in his soul. It's a very terrible state. And if that's all I said this morning, it's very depressing. It's a state of despair. But fortunately, it's only half of the verses. It's only half the situation of the sinner because, who's not saved because there's another half of the verse. There's another half of the description and it's actually, in verse three, is blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they're about to receive the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is gonna be theirs. And the sinner that feels that way is actually blessed. He, and he's, he's blessed are they that mourn. Why? Because it's not very far around the corner that he's gonna be comforted. And blessed, in verse five, blessed are the meek, blessed are the crushed. Why? because they're soon gonna be the inheritors of the earth. And the sinner that feels that way is actually blessed. And then you move on to verse six. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. Why? Because it won't be very long that they're gonna be filled. I mean, this is really something. I mean, heaven is gonna become theirs. And they're gonna get comforted and they're gonna inherit the earth and they're gonna be filled. That all sounds like good news. That all sounds like the word gospel, good news. Good news, that all sounds like gospel good news. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a wonderful news because what these verses here, verses three through six, are really saying is that the good news is that there's, there's going to be this wonderful exchange. The gospel, good news, is that there's gonna be, in verse three, where he's saying, bring your poverty to the Lord and he'll take your poverty and he'll give you heaven. He exchanges our poverty for heaven. That's great news. And in verse four, he's saying, bring your sad state, bring your sad mourning. And he takes your mourning, your sad mourning, and he gives you his comfort. He exchanges our mourning for his comfort. That's great news. And in verse five, you bring your crushed spirit. You bring your meekness. And he takes your meekness and he, and he gives you the earth. That's great. And then he says in verse six, 
go ahead, bring your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. And he takes your thirst and your hunger for righteousness and he fills you, fills you with his righteousness. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Christ is made unto us righteousness. So this is all great news. This is the gospel style great news. And this is what the gospel does. It takes the, the downcast and it puts, the gospel puts the hand under the chin of the sinner and lifts him up and saves him from his sin and gives him so much more than he deserved. And this scene of the gospel doing this, of the Lord doing this, this good news, is the scene of the prodigal and the father of the prodigal son. The father of the prodigal son, yeah. Because the father of the prodigal. Anyway, it says in Luke 15, 21, Luke 15, 21, just think about this. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount and, and this great exchange that takes place. You know, and think about this as I read this Luke 15, 21 account. The son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. It's pretty much the first description, the first half of the descriptions in verses three through six. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring in his hand, shoes on his feet, bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found and they began to be merry. So, This is what verses three through six in Matthew five are all about. The first part of each verse in verses three through six is us coming to God with nothing. We're the prodigal that come and say, we're not worthy, we're terrible. We've been in our sins and it's terrible. But the second part of each verse in verses three through six is God saying, in essence, he's saying, yeah, I know, but put the best robe on him and bring the nicest ring, the finest ring, and put on his finger and bring the choicest shoes to put on his, his feet and kill the fatted calf. We're gonna have a party because he was lost and now he's found. So this is what's happening in verses three through six. This is pre-salvation. But after verse six, the sinner is saved at this point. He's saved. So when we come to verse seven, Matthew five, verse seven, the sinner is saved. Now he's been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's now a child of God, he's saved. And so now he's no longer in this group of the lost and the condemned. He's transitioned, he's transitioned, just like it's described in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, those together, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what he's saying is that this person that we're looking at here, anyways, in, in, in Matthew 5, he used to be in the group of the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, and the abusers themselves with mankind, the thieves, the covetous, the drunkards. He, he used to be in that. And he used to be in that group and look at the rest of the world, and his response was, well, they're just like me. We all have our problems, and everybody's got their own problems. I got my own problems. 
uh, uh, reminds me of the person that I called one time on the phone and uh, to give him the gospel as a homosexual, and he said, hell? He said, I'm already in hell. And that's how this person sees the world. He sees the world that he was lost in, and, but now it's different. Now he's saved, this person. And now, when he looks out at the world of the lost, he sees them differently now. He sees the world as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So now he sees the world as, uh, when he looks out at it, he sees the world of, that's where I came from. I used to live there. I used to be a part of that world. And he sees the, the world of sinners, and he said, I used to be one of them, but now it's different. Because now I'm washed from my sins, now I'm set apart for God's use, and now I'm justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. That's how I am now. So now the question is, how should he view the world that he came out of? You know, what should his attitude be to the community of sinners that he used to be a part of? Should he say, well, I'm glad to be gone from that life, I'm glad to be away from those people, and I wanna get as far away as possible from those people. I left, I'm gone, I don't wanna be near those people anymore. Should that be his attitude? Is that what he should say? Is that what he should think? Is that what his attitude should be from the group that he used to be a member of? I mean, now he's saved, and should he turn his back on the lost and just say, I'm done? And verse seven now comes in with, with the answer to that question with a resounding no, no. Now that he's saved, God calls on him to be merciful, merciful. What does that mean to be merciful? How is the saved sinner to be merciful to the lost sinner? And the answer to that question, it lies in the meaning of the word mercy, and mercy is best understood, strange as this may seem. Not by the Hebrew word, not by the Greek word, but actually mercy is best understood by the Latin word, which has nothing to do with the Bible, but anyway. Well, I mean, you know, the Catholic Church wouldn't agree, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, it's really best understood by the Latin word because the word mercy in Latin, and, and I don't speak Latin, but anyway, it says Misera cordis, that's the word mercy in Latin, misericordis. And that's interesting because the Latin word for mercy, misericordis, is actually made up of two words. It's made up of the word misera and cordis. And misera, as you would guess, means misery. It means pain. And cordis means heart, like cardiac. So misericordis means to feel the pain or misery of another person in the heart, as opposed to just the mind. Kind of reminds me of, of, uh, of my friends, uh, Deanna and her husband, Reuben. And one time, taking the drive back road to Takati, going down 94, uh, the U.S. side, 94, you get to Takati. And we're, we're driving through there, and, and this is a road that, that Reuben has driven many, many times and over many, many years, you know. And we're driving through that, and Reuben began to describe people that live on 94, way out there in the backcountry. Anyway, and he says, oh yeah, and this person, you know, during the, he mentions a fire, during this fire, uh, his house was burned down. And he comes another one, and he says, oh yeah, and, and this person lost their house, the, the barn was burned, and this person, he comes another, this, this person lost their whole house. 
What's interesting about it is that as Reuben is describing what's happened to all these people who live along 94, he's crying. He's crying. He's, he's, he's weeping as he's driving along and he's telling. You know, that's, that's mercy. That's misericordis. That's feeling misery and pain in the heart. So mercy for the saved person means to look at a lost person and feel in his heart the misery that that lost person feels. And it's to feel the misery of verse three of what it means to be absolutely spiritually bankrupt because of sin. It's to feel the misery in verse four of what it means to be so sad and mourning over sin. It's to feel the misery in verse five of what it means to feel the crushed in a state of meekness over sin, and it's to feel the misery in verse six of, being, of starving for righteousness because sin has stripped him out of any possibility of righteousness. And so being merciful is to feel this pain in the heart. And for the saved person, to be merciful to the lost means to do something about it in verse seven, which is to bring the gospel, bring the second part of those verses three through six to the sinner. And being merciful means for the saved to bring the good news of the gospel to the lost where God can bring him heaven and God can comfort him and God can give him the earth to inherit and God can fill him with God's righteousness. This is what it means for a saved person to be merciful to a lost person. It's to bring the good news of the gospel to that lost person. And this is actually the first fruit of a saved person who is coming off of himself personally, uh, verses three through six. His first fruit is to be merciful, is to be merciful to bring the gospel to the lost. That's why verse seven comes after three through six. You might wanna write that down, that seven comes after <laughs> six. <laughs> anyway, so, and it's done in such a way, when the gospel is brought to the lost, it's done in such a way that the person really is not front and center with all this. It's the gospel that's front and center. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's not the person. Kind of reminds me a little bit about the silkworm. The silkworm's very interesting. You know, the silkworm makes beautiful silk. You know, that's the way it's called, the silkworm. But what's interesting about the silkworm is that when you see the silk that he's making there, the worm, what you see is the beautiful silk. And you don't see the worm because the worm hides itself behind the silk that he's making. So you don't, see the, you don't see the silkworm, you just see the silk. And that's the way that we should bring the gospel, that where we hold out the beauty of the gospel so much, and God so much, that people don't see us, they just see the gospel, they just see God, just like the silkworm who hides herself behind the silk that she's making. That's what humility looks like, and that's what not being proud looks like. And so there was this time in the life of Moses, when Moses just felt this yearning inside, and he just wanted to know more about who God was. And Moses said to God that, you know, he wasn't just satisfied with the knowledge that he had of God, and he wanted to know more about who God was. And so he, he said to God in Exodus 33, 13, Exodus 33, 13, he says, now therefore I pray thee if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, he really wanted to know God deeper. And so God told Moses, okay, I'll show you more of who I am. And so he, he put it this way to Moses. He said, this is the way it's gonna work. He said in Exodus 33, 17, Exodus 33, 17. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, 
I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He said, God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so the great day happened that Moses was asking for, and Moses was put in an opening in a rock, and God passed by him. And as he did, Moses only saw his backside, but God proclaimed to Moses who he was in Exodus 33.20, Exodus 33.20. He said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass when my, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff, an opening, in the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I'll take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So that come about, next chapter, Exodus 34, 6, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and it will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children of the third and fourth generation. So, so God is proclaiming who he is to Moses, and the first quality that God proclaims about himself in, verse, in Exodus 34, 6, 34, 6, it says, the Lord God, merciful, this is the key description of who God is. God is merciful. And since the greatest mercy is to save sinners by the gospel, this is what God loves to do the most. This is the ultimate mercy of God, to save sinners from their sins. And that's why it says about God in 1 Timothy 2.4, 1 Timothy 2.4, that he will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In mercy, God wants every single person on earth to be saved. And this is why it says about God in 2 Peter 3, 9, 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In mercy, God does not intend or want or desire for any person to perish, not one. And that has an implication for us. That has an implication for us. That has an implication for us when we go to the grocery store. And we look at the checker, and that has an implication where we, we say to ourselves, taking these two verses, we say to ourselves, God is merciful to that person, that checker, because God intends for that checker to be saved, and God is not willing that that checker should perish in hell because of sins. And this is who the merciful God is, a gospel-giving God to save the lost. So to be like God is to put a priority for that person to be saved because God's merciful and to give the gospel to that person because that's who God is. It reminds me of uh, being like God. It reminds me of uh, uh, what happened to a boy, a boy who was in Grand Central Station in New York. And the boy was selling apples. And he had a basket full of apples. And he was kind of thinking to himself, well, where do I have the best chance of selling my apples? And he said, well, you know, he's thinking to himself, yeah, where all the people are. So he sees this... Uh, train approaching, and he knows the people are going to pour out of that during rush hour. And so he gets right in the middle of the way where the people are going to come. He kind of thinks he's got the best chance to sell apples. Well, the train arrives, and all the people come rushing out. And as the people are coming pouring out, the boy is knocked over, and his apples go flying. Right? So he gets up. His apples are everywhere. He starts to cry. And a man stops, 
and gathers up all his apples for him and puts them in the basket. And the boy looked up at the man and he said, sir, are you Jesus? Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 